0: We continue in our series looking or seeking spiritual R&R, renewal and revival. If you found moments in life, I'm sure you have had moments in life, when you just needed that reassurance that God is there. As as I prepare some uh, younger people for ministry and some young theologians to be prepared for all that public ministry brings. One of the insights that I um, find very helpful is that just below the surface of almost any pastoral inquiry, any pastoral conversation that develops, is that profound question, where is God in the midst of my experience of life, whatever it may be? We just want to know where is God to be found in life as I experience it as we in our family experience it. We have two striking examples in our passages that I'll come to in a few moments. Moses in the bush that was flaming but not burning and Paul as he encountered how he had got it so dramatically wrong when he had been persecuting the church and followers of Jesus. We all face moments which either at the time or in hindsight, we look back on and think life never was quite the same after that moment, after that experience. And I'm sure different moments would come to your mind. I had one of those on Saturday morning when I woke up and saw I had just missed a phone call from my sister-in-law, Ruth, and uh, called back. I knew what that call would be. Ruth, Jonathan's wife, was letting me know that Jonathan had died in the small hours of the morning, surrounded by the family. I had known that was uh, to be anticipated. My travels back from Cairns went via Brisbane, as you do with some of the flights late at night, Um, and as I touched down in Cairns and turned my phone on, there was a text message from Ruth to say that uh, the levels of Jonathan's sedation were going up because of his uh, struggle with breathing. Even though I hadn't heard from Ruth until Saturday morning, as I went to bed on Friday night I knew. Just had a strong sense of praying, being very mindful of just the wretched struggle that motor neuron brings and was praying that Jonathan would be released from that struggle in God's time and a strong sense of God saying that night was the time had come. So it is a, a sweet sadness. No one would want that to be prolonged. And it's an experience of grief that we all encounter in a whole variety of ways in our own lives. And life is never quite the same again. I'm one of four boys. I've always been one of four boys, being the youngest. And uh, my my dad was one of five boys. He was the eldest of five. I was the youngest of four. And the four are no longer four. My uh, mother was a bit anxious at one stage that having had the the five boys, my father's generation, and my mother's experience of having four boys... Yes, I was called Jennifer until I was born, apparently. (laughs) Um, And then uh, three out of the four of us, our firstborn, were all boys. My brother Jonathan kicked the trend and redressed the gender imbalance. He had five girls, he had three, and he thought he might have one more, and they were twins, both girls. And uh, they're a lovely, lovely, lovely family. But life is never quite the same as we reflect on that. Um, my brother Jonathan, of my three older brothers, is the most like me, probably a better version of me. You know, if I have got a passion for sport, John had a real driving obsession with all things sporting. If I'd work hard at sport to achieve a certain degree of ability, Jonathan was a natural you know, he could just not play cricket for three or four seasons, come out and just knock off a century just like that. In um, all things academic, you know, I do love books. If you think I've got a lot of books, multiply that by about four and you have my brother Jonathan's library. If you will, ask him, if, uh, you know, has he got a book or two on a topic? He'll come up with a pile this deep and so. Jonathan's always been someone I'd aspired to as a younger brother. I could joke and say it was typical of Jonathan to be first, except that I know that he didn't want to go. Loved his family dearly. And at the age of 69, was looking forward to enjoying seeing his family grow around him. Yet God is in the midst of that experience. It's not quite the adequate way to say it, but as a number of you know, I... um, Travelled over to Sydney about a month ago when Jonathan was still able to be uh, out in the garden. Couldn't speak, um, but if you were to plan a final time with one of your family to have three hours in the sun with the family around, younger children playing in the playhouse and the garden that Jonathan loved so much and conversation flowing around him, and a few occasions in which he would reach for his pad and just correct a few of my versions of the stories I was telling. And Jonathan would correct them. And we knew it was the final time. God is in the midst of those moments. And I'm sure you'd have moments where just that reassurance of God just saying to us, I'm here. And that peace that comes. As I get older in life, The questions of why never get any easier. And very often I know that there's no easy answers to the questions of why. But I'm not fussed by that as much as I used to be. I just need to know that in the midst of that picture, in the midst of those experiences, God is there. And God says, I've got it. Moses and Paul had some crises in their own life in the case of Moses, in the context of Exodus 3. Remember how um, Exodus starts with Moses growing up in childhood, initially privileged childhood in the family, in the household of Pharaoh. But things uh, turned seriously messy. And uh, he got involved in uh, having killed an Egyptian, had to flee. And he fled across to his father-in-law, Jethro a priest of Midian. And the details that we have that introduce our passage that we just heard from Tim. Um, Moses has now fled over to Midian. He's tending the flock and he'd led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and in Exodus. The wilderness is a moment in which we are tested, in which we can reflect and a place of great learnings. And so he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, later to be known as Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So Moses saw that the bush was on fire but did not burn up. So he said, I'll go over and see what's a strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? And there he encounters God. God calls to Moses from within the bush. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And then he said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. A reminder that the God we encounter in our life is the God of all generations, past, present, and future. The one God. That we encounter, and it's been a profound thing to to, uh, to mark and to celebrate here as we've had our 175th at St Matthew's, whether we've been here or elsewhere, to know that God has always been ever present throughout the ages. But there are three qualities in particular that are revealed to Moses in this extraordinary encounter, this uh, appearance of God through this. Um, burning bush or the flaming bush. Three verbs in particular that speak to us. God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have seen. I've heard them crying. And I am concerned about their suffering. Those three verbs are true of God at every time and in every place. A God who sees, a God who hears, and a God who is concerned, profoundly concerned. And so Moses is commissioned with a task. And Moses thinks it's a terrific plan that God comes up with. Go back to Egypt confront Pharaoh, release the people in captivity and lead them into the promised land. And Moses, in effect, slight paraphrase, says to God, look, I think it's a wonderful plan. There's just one small problem with a plan. You've got the wrong person. (laughs) I'm not up to this task. Surely you mean someone else. And he uses a phrase, I'm not capable of what you're asking of me. I'm not sufficient for this. It's too much. Interestingly Paul uses exactly the same phrase when he's going through a hard time in the second experience that we have in our the second reading in 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians is probably the most personal of Paul's letters he, he's putting his heart out on his sleeve. He's actually had an encounter with death and he found to his surprise he survived. Most likely it was an illness. And as he survived, he thought, well, maybe there's still something that God wants me to do. But he had to explain his change of travel plans to the church at Corinth. Paul had been there at the outset. The church was created through his ministry. And he had a um, a love, difficult relationship with the church in Corinth. As he had spent a significant period of his ministry there and seen the church grow and to flourish. As he left um, others moved in and began to say very unfair things about Paul. said, he writes all these strong letters, but you see him in person. He's not nearly as impressive as an orator. Compare him to published, you know, uh, to uh, polished presenters who know how to really carry a crowd in the forum. Paul was nothing like that. What really disturbed Paul wasn't so much... The, uh, these outsiders who are coming in and comparing them, later on in Second Corinthians, he deals with them very convincingly. What really hurt Paul is that people who knew him, people in whose homes he'd had shared, people he had lived amongst and ministered alongside, were not standing and speaking for him. They were providing sympathetic ground all these voices of criticism. So there's a lot of pain behind Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians. And you can see the self-doubt when Paul talks about how his calling as an apostle means he leads the way in a triumph. That is to say, he's one of the slaves that leads the way, one of the prisoners who leads the way in a triumph, a triumphal procession. He's not saying it positively, he's saying it's, it's hard and at that point, Paul then chooses to echo exactly the same words as Moses. He said, who is sufficient for this? It's just hard work. And then he answers himself, chapter 3. He says, well, my sufficiency, any capacity, any capability that I have comes from God and only from God. It's nothing to do that I bring to it. But then he says, but what is more, the message I bring compared to Moses It's like Moses had a candle compared to the the giant light that beams through the message of Jesus. It is so much even better and more radiant. So as he comes into chapter 4, the passage that we just heard, he says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, he said. And he talks about how the way he wants to go about, he goes about his ministry as an apostle, as a minister is that he doesn't copy the polished presenters in the public forum. He's not one of the opinion makers who's trying to stir up the crowd and to, to gather a, a following. Nor does he go about his ministry trying to, with a bowl out the front to get financial support and giving. He says, I oh, know I renounce all those ways. There's only one reason why I do what I do. And he talks about how the light has shone into the darkness of his life. Now, the verse he quotes is the verse from Genesis 1, how creation itself was a moment of light shining in the darkness. But Paul also knows his own experience of light shining into his darkness. Remember how horrified he was when he learned that the church that he had been persecuting, the church gathering in the name of Jesus, was of God. And in that darkness of his sudden realisation that he had been persecuting Christ himself, he discovered the light breaking into his darkness. And that experience is behind what he says here. This, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If we were to think, it would be pretty cool to come across a flaming bush that wasn't burning and encounter God speaking out of it. Now, that was a unique event. But Paul says you actually have something much brighter than that. We all can behold the glory of God reflected in the person of Jesus, the image of God. He is the ultimate epiphany. If we want to know what God looks like, God's character, God's purpose... We can see it in human form in the person of Jesus. And remember that Jesus himself said, blessed are those who have seen and experienced my ministry. They particularly have been, uh, it's it's grace of God that they are able to see it. But he says, even greater are those who believe on the basis of their testimony. That's us. We can behold the character, the purposes of God. And we see, like Paul discovered, a God who sees, a God who hears, and a God who responds. And we have that assurance in whatever experience of life we find ourselves, both the joys and the celebrations, and in the times of grief and of sadness. God is present. God hears. God sees. And God loves. So Paul concludes, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, so far as I'm concerned. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of a knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That is the ultimate epiphany manifestation of God. There's a wonderful piece in the uh, Eternity magazine, new, little newspaper. We get about half a dozen copies, I think. I think there's one still floating around somewhere but if you can get hold of it, it's a really interesting issue. It looks at the theme of revival and some reflections on uh, what happened at Asbury University in the US earlier this year. And it's astonishing 10-14 uh, day um, time of prayer, continual prayer in this breakout. But it's an article in particular that really grabbed my attention. Do we need revival today? And in this article, uh, they interview three people who have quite some insights into both the history and also the present experience of revival. On the left-hand side of the three is uh, Professor uh, Stuart Piggin, uh, previously at uh, Wollongong University and uh, now at Macquarie University. And uh, Fiona and I have known Stuart Piggin for about 30 years or more um, from our time in Wollongong. In fact, our first parish that uh, we had as uh, when I was the sole charge of the parish was Helensburg, south of the Royal National Park. It's a coal mining uh, village initially, um, and... Uh, there's a revival across the Illawarra coal mining villages in the early 1900s. In fact, there's been about 12 remarkable occasions of revivals across Australia. We're not often aware of them, and um, uh, Stuart Piggin, and there's also a book that um, Jerry will pass on to you, will let you know about, that documents those revivals. It's really encouraging to read them. Uh, so effective were these revivals through the early, these coal mining villages around the Illawarra escarpment that uh, some of the pubs were complaining they were going out of business. But even more amusing, St- Stuart Piggin came across this story in a newspaper uh, from the, about 1905, 1906, where they had a, um, a problem in the coal mines where the, the, the pit ponies were not responding to their instructions in the mines. They were just standing there and the instructions were came and the pit ponies didn't know what to do. The reason was that they were only used to hearing their instructions accompanied by lots of swear words and curses that they responded to. And because the miners stopped swearing, the ponies literally did not know what to do. (laughs) It's in the paper. Stuart quotes um, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards uh, is one of the great American revivalists of a previous century, of the 19th century and uh, Stuart Piggan was interested to know what did he make of the experience of revivals. And he says, Jonathan Edwards described revival as waking up to reality. And I, remember I had known that phrase, but this article highlights it and already drawn it to my attention. Waking up to reality, it's the ultimate reality check, but it's a positive one. Jonathan Edwards thought that reality was greater than truth. Reality is the world as it is made and perceived by God. Stuart Pigan said. He goes on to explain Reality is the world as it is made and perceived by God. In uh, Stuart Pigan's words, Edwards noted that there is a sudden realization that one's own perspective is not. God's perspective. And that's why revivals are very dramatic and often involve emotion. It's a bit of a shock to discover that the life that you've lived, even as a Christian, has been suboptimal, less than the reality which God has intended for us. We see the world around us, we glimpse it as God sees it. We see the people, we see creation. We see ourselves and how God is at work and realise, how did I not see that? And it changes our whole outlook and the notion of repentance is to see things differently as God sees it. So as we seek this spiritual R and R renewal and revival, it can't be on our terms we can't sit there and think, well, God, this is what I'd like to experience and have a little plan in mind. It is to allow ourselves to be opened up to realities and God's presence in a way which will transform us deeply from our hearts, from our minds, from our hopes and ambitions, that which drives us, that which we desire. There we find renewal and revival. Just as Moses, just as Paul, the invitation for us is to see God in a way in which opens our eyes, the light that suddenly shines into the greater reality. One of the profound ministries we have as a church, as we gather as a church, is to remind ourselves of those greater realities, to, to sing about them, to hear about them in God's word, to pray with that sense that heaven would then become the reality on earth that shapes our own sense of direction and purpose. It is in that spirit that we are able to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve and to weep with hope for those who weep. Amen.